What's up? What's up? This is Zach Boschman checking in. You are listening to the Citizen Truth podcast. We are so excited this week to have Garrett Rappenhagen on the podcast, Executive Director of Veterans for Peace. Garrett, let's get right into it, man. Why peace? You know, why challenge the, the empire, if you will? Well, thanks, Zach, for having me on the show. Um, and uh, I appreciate uh, cutting it right into it. Um, I mean, I, I served in the U.S. military as a sniper in the U.S. Army. And, uh, you know, through that experience, it was a, it was a transformative awakening experience. Um, you know, I see the, the harm that the U.S. military does all over the world. Uh, our military aggression is extension of our neocolonialism. And, uh, you know, we, we export a lot of harm. And usually the benefits uh, of all that aggression are the military industrial complex uh, CEOs and executives. Uh, the benefits are individual politicians and their personal gains. And very rarely is it the, the American people and certainly isn't the benefit of, uh, you know, foreign, foreign communities who, you know, unwillingly host our military aggression overseas. Um, so there's, there's a lot of hurt that's done and, uh, it's, it's not bringing us national security. It's, it's not helping, uh, support democracy overseas, not making anybody any safer. Um, so, you know, I started, I started really, uh, turning against the mission that I was in in Iraq and then, uh, more and more realized that all these conflicts were interconnected and a lot of the myths that were sold as an American people, um, are, are just lies. And, you know, the, the push for nationalism and, uh, the pseudo patriotism that, uh, seems to be, uh, the Kool-Aid that they're trying to sell, uh, most folks to support foreign wars, um, is, is really just hurting us all. And, uh, that's, that's why I'm, uh, I'm a person of peace. Awesome, Garrett. So I want to get into, you know, how you sort of arrived at that perspective. Um, but I want to take it back first. Uh, do you come from a military family and what was it initially that, that drew you into the military, you know, when you were signing up? Yeah. Um, you know, both my grandfathers were first generation Americans, uh, from European immigrants and, uh, they served during World War II. Uh, one was a Marine and one was a, a communications officer on a destroyer in the Pacific. And, uh, you know, my father joined the military in lieu of Vietnam. Um, he enlisted. Two of his friends were, uh, were drafted and served in the Marine Corps infantry. And he wanted to avoid the fate of the U.S. infantry and uh, uh, decided to enlist because he didn't have plans to really uh, or a pathway into college. So he enlisted, served as a, a army engineer, um, and uh, I, I grew up in the military. Basically, uh, my father, you know, and our family moved about eight different times before the age I was before uh, the age of thirteen, and uh, my father retired from the U.S. Army um, after over twenty years of service. And uh, the year he retired, uh, I was a freshman in in high school. Uh, he died of Agent Orange-related cancer, um, so not a not a super uh, you know like it like the tradition of military service. My family really wasn't a massive component on why I joined. Um, I was actually uh, I was actually kind of trying to avoid military service, um, really, because you know I grew up on military bases. I saw the garrison life of a soldier, 
um, you know, from, from traveling around, uh, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a high motivation of mine. Uh, but when my father died, um, he was the authoritarian figure in my life. And, uh, I ran out to find sex, drugs, and rock and roll as a high school student. And I was a dumb enough to find it. And, uh, basically it led me to dropping out of high school and, uh, trying to make, make it on my own basically. Um, and, uh, finally I had enough of sleeping in my car before working one of my four jobs. And, uh, I, uh, I joined up one month before September 11th. Wow. That's, that's wild. So what, uh, so what, what were you thinking, you know, when September 11th happened? Um, yeah, it was a little, little bit of an oh shit moment. You know, I was not, uh, you know, truth be told, I was not, um, super hyped to go anywhere and kill the enemies of the United States right away. You know, I, I, I thought there was still a lot of confusion around, uh, who did it and why, of course, uh, you know, I'm barely in my twenties and, um, you know, I didn't, didn't know a lot of the world. It certainly wasn't well-educated. I was a high school dropout. So, um, yeah, I was, I was, you know, I, I was, I probably would have reconsidered joining, but, uh, you know, I had kind of set my path in motion. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I committed to joining. So, you know, I, I went off and I did it. Um, so, so yeah, it was, uh, I took basic training real seriously. I'll tell you that much. Um, you know, our drill sergeants drove it into our skulls that we were going to go to Afghanistan and die immediately. And, uh, you know, so I, uh, I tried to take every lesson I could from, uh, from one site unit training, uh, where I learned to be a cavalry scout, um, at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, later as, as more and more came out, I guess, uh, about September 11th and, uh, what occurred there, um, it was, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it was just one, one more lie you know, that, yeah. that seemed to be kept, kept on building, especially as we led up to, to go to Iraq. And, uh, um, I found myself, uh, doing sniper missions, over 180 sniper missions in Iraq. Um, while so I was, was there that, the night, was that, that where you were deployed first to Iraq? Yeah. I mean, I, I did my home duty station was in Vilsack, Germany. Um, so a lot of my friends who, uh, who I went to basic with ended up in different units that deployed right away to Afghanistan. And, uh, instead I was, I was sent to a unit in, uh, Vilsack, Germany with the first infantry division, the big red one. And, uh, I mean, I was, I was going to, you know, different European towns on four day weekends. And, you know, for me, the war was like far away and inconceivable. You know, we were doing a lot of training. We were going to check and to Holmfels and all these massive training areas, doing a lot of training. And then we got called up to go to Kosovo. So instead of going to war, I went to a peacekeeping mission in Kosovo. Uh, it was a UN ran peacekeeping mission. So what was, what was that like, uh, your experience in Kosovo? Um, it was pretty positive. Um, you know, I was, I was, uh, I felt like we were doing the right thing. You know, it's, uh, I really didn't enjoy the garrison lifestyle of, of the military. I didn't like, uh, you know, I didn't like, uh, being on base in Vilsack. Um, I love being in Europe, but, you know, like, uh, just training and cleaning your rifle all the time was, uh, was starting to get a little old. So yeah. it was nice to go on a deployment and, and use all these skills that, that, uh, you know, I was training for, and, uh, I did some cool stuff. You know, I, uh, 
I helped remove landmines from the church that Mother Teresa was baptized in. Um, we uh, got a lot of weapons and uh, stuff off the streets. I guarded a wedding. Um, there was a Kosovar Serb and a Kosovar Albanian that wanted to get married in their backyard. And uh, there are factions of their family that would stop it with violence and they wanted to blow it up or kill someone. And uh, through U.S. military protection, uh, they were able to get married in their backyard. Um, I even uh, I found some mass graves from ethnic cleansing where some Roma were uh, executed by Serbians uh, when they ran through the country. And uh, I saved three kids from being uh, human trafficked out of the country that were tied up uh, to, to muleback and being led through the Macedonia mountains to, to be trafficked. Um, so, so I was kind of proud of what I was doing. I, uh, I really devoted myself to the, to the craft of being a soldier. And uh, by the time I left on paper, I looked like the perfect soldier um, because I was really, you know, I started actually considering, you know, doing a career military sort of thing. Um, so that's when I was selected to sniper school. Okay. So you go to, um, sniper school and then you ended up becoming a sniper in Iraq. Yeah, I did a, I did a three week, uh, sniper school called international, international interdiction course. It's called a category level two, uh, sniper, sniper course. So I didn't go off to, to, uh, you know, back to the States and go through the regular sniper school. Most infantry go through. Um, it was kind of like uh, the, the army just popped up all these uh, temporary schools uh, to because they knew they needed sniper assets in, in Iraq, uh, especially after having so many casualties by sniper fire. Um, so we realized that we needed our own snipers. Uh, so so, yeah, I went to this school, this three week school, uh, got certified. And uh, when we deployed to Iraq, I was put into a, a seven person um uh, sniper asset team that was guided by uh, brigade military intelligence, uh, mostly to reduce um, IEDs in our sector, roadside bombs that were being planted, and uh, reduce the amount of rocket and uh, mortar attacks that were hitting our bases. So we were being sent out there either roadside to stop IEDs from being planted and try to catch them in the act, um, or out to these fields where uh, you know, the, the rocket and mortar enemy rocket and mortar teams would go out to the same locations, um, because they were fairly inaccurate. So they knew if they go to the same place and adjust fire, you know, the next time they have a better chance of hitting. So we would, uh, cross triangulate where those places were, and then we would deploy out there and sit out in the, uh, in the bushes for a few days, hoping that we caught the, caught the mortar and rocket teams. So, yeah, that's what I was doing in Iraq. So what was that, that experience like, uh, in Iraq, did you feel like your service had the same meaning as, as in Kosovo or, you know, is that when you sort of turned, turned against what you were doing? Yeah, I never, never really felt welcome, you know, in Iraq, you know, from the moment I crossed the barrier, uh, at Camp Wolverine into, uh, into Iraq, uh, and we were driving up in our Humvees. Um, you know, this is, this is well after Saddam Hussein had been captured, um, you know, false sovereignty was given over by Paul Bremer and he fled the country. Um, so, so this is after, like, we thought after the major conflict was going to be done, but really once I entered the country, um, almost the first group of Iraqis I saw, I realized that we weren't being welcomed there as liberators, um, you know, we were, we were being seen mostly by as oppressors and occupiers. And, uh, 
you know, it's, it was a different feel. That's, that's for sure. And the people that we were killing, um, you know, they really, you know, their major complaints were the fact that, uh, we were setting up roadblocks and raiding homes and disappearing people to Abu Ghraib and all sorts of shit like that. So, um, you know, I, I never, I never really felt like I was welcome there or doing anybody a big service. Mostly all I did there was try to stay alive and keep my buddies alive, uh, for one year of a, of a deployment. And, uh, through that, um, really eliminating threats, um, violently, um, and unilaterally really, uh, you know, with the maximum amount of firepower that we were allowed to use by Geneva conventions, um, and sometimes more. So, (laughs) so basically through the, through the threat and terror that we inflicted upon the Iraqi people, um, was what we thought would be the, the easiest way for us to remain safe just by scaring the shit out of people. So, um, it sounds like you, you kind of felt not welcomed as soon as you got there. When did this, this, uh, you know, like political awakening, if you will, um, come for you? Yeah, it slowly started. Uh, and, uh, you know, I wish there was just like one transformational moment that I could point to. That's like so easy for, uh, to see that evolution, you know, there it was a slow wear and tear on my, you know, in my morals and values to realize like what was going on and what I was participating in. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's little things like when Abu Ghraib was exposed, um, you know, that, that was a big piece of it. Like realizing the conduct that a lot of service members were involved in and, and being able to use that kind of as a learning point to self-reflect and look at how my own, uh, behavior was, you know, in sector and how I was acting. Um, you know, that, that was a really big thing. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the situation that happened in Fallujah, you know, I was there during the first battle of Fallujah when the contractors were hung up from the bridge and the Marines moved in and then, uh, they, they, they stalled and pulled back out just long enough for George W. Bush to get reelected. And then we went back in and like leveled the city. Um, you know, shit like that were like kind of awakening moments, but a lot of like just, just small interactions with the Iraqi people, um, helped kind of wake me up. Um, and I, I had been, I'd been reading a lot. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't the brightest kid, uh, kid on the block. Um, but when I was back home on leave between Kosovo and Iraq, um, I asked, uh, I went to a bookstore in Manatee Springs, Colorado, and I uh, used bookstore and asked the lady who owned the place uh, if she had any books on, on Iraq. And that I, I was a soldier and I was going to Iraq probably and I needed to learn about it. And, uh, you know, she gave me a lot of good non-fictional books uh, about the Middle East politics and post-World War II stuff. And, um, you know, it was, it was awakening, you know, learning about like just uh, Muslims and, um, you know, different things that should, I should have known in Kosovo because we were dealing with Kosovar Albanians that were Muslim. Um, and every single town had like a Catholic or Orthodox church and a mosque in it. Um, but, uh, but I was still pretty dumb about it. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot about that from those books, but she also said, uh, you know, she said, if, if I'm reading all this nonfiction and I should read something, uh, you know, I should read some fiction just to break it up a little bit. So she threw in stuff like Joseph Keller's uh, Catch-22, uh, you know, some Kurt Vonnegut's and stuff like that, um, you know, just just more stuff to like, uh, you know, wake me up a little bit. 
but she had a copy of Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. And uh, she said, if you really want to know why you're going to war as a soldier, you should read this first. And uh, so I did. I read that book first and uh, it blew me away. You know, I can't say that it like I, I, uh, I was finishing that book, um, you know, really before I even deployed. Um, it was enough to make me like look at things critically, you know, but not uh, not enough where I was just like, this is the Bible. I've you know, I've got a you know this is the, the real history of, of, of America. You know, I was just like, there, there's a handful of screwed up stuff in this. And, uh, it, it allowed me to kind of like, just, just see things with an open mind, I guess more. So I had started, uh, I started writing, um, you know, it started off as letters to a band called the bouncing souls. Uh, and they were posting mm -hmm. my emails in a, in a page called letters from Iraq. And, uh, awesome. a buddy convinced that. me to, yeah, a buddy buddy convinced me to write a blog, um, to post all my letters in a blog, and uh, it was the first time I heard that word in my life. I never heard the word blog. This is two thousand and four. Yeah, um, blogs weren't that big back then. Yeah, yeah. So he's just like, eh, it's just like a, it's like a online journal. It's public; people can read it, but it's like a journal. So I'd started writing, and it was, uh, and a couple buddies wrote wrote with me and submitted it, and we were all kind of like co-founders of this blog. And um, we were writing anonymously, which is interesting because because uh, at first it was just like day to day activity, you know, it's nothing really. It was just a journal. Um, but we realized that there was there's possibly some sensitive stuff in there that we might not want to be like our names to be public. Um, and really, we didn't even know the rules. You know, we didn't know if we were allowed to do this. Um, so we were, we were all writing with handles, you know, and uh, I think I started writing as uh, Soldier X. And uh, later my name changed to heretic. Um, and you could see like an evolution through my writing of like, um, this is just day-to-day -day activity without really much opinion. And then uh, more and more throughout the year, you could see, oh, like this person's developing some opinions and like, they are definitely like anti-mission and like pretty, uh, you know, pretty, uh, you know, not, not happy about the current situation and a lot of things that are going on. Um, all the way from like the causes of going to war, uh, the conduct of sometimes myself and, and the fellow service members, um, and like the consequences, uh, of the, of that conflict. And, uh, it got picked up more and more by the anti-war network in America. Randy Rhodes was reading it on air America. Um, whenever I made a post, she would, uh, she would read it another post from soldier X and she'd read my thing and, um, so more and more people started reading it and writing me. Um, and then I got busted for it. Uh, the command came down on me. Um, they, you know, writing about such, uh, real intimate details of some of the stuff that was happening. It wasn't too hard to figure out. This is a sniper and we only have so many sniper assets in this sectored area. And it seems like it's coming from probably this base. So that, that narrows it down to like seven people. Um, so it was pretty easy to find me. Um, and, uh, I, I had to stand before the man in front of my commander and get questioned. And, um, they told me to stop writing and, uh, you know, there was going to be an investigation, uh, military intelligence and, uh, you know, uh, was going to kind of investigate me for espionage, breaking operational security, treason. And, uh, I kept writing uh secretly i would write on a on a laptop 
put it on a thumb drive and have my buddies because I was uh, I was banned from the computer lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my buddies would take the stick in and just copy and paste and post for me. Um, so then they cut me from my sniper missions. They, they cut me from the missions. And I, for the last three months in Iraq, I was doing gate guard duty and uh, perimeter guard. And uh, I got pulled from the sniper team completely. So yeah, eventually, uh, eventually I got back to Vilsec, Germany. Um, I was under stop loss. So I served 10 months over my, my enlistment date was, was up. And, uh, the rule is when you get back to your home duty station off deployment, um, you're frozen for three months. And then everybody who stopped lost, uh, is, uh, is allowed to separate from the military. Um, so I was held out longer than that. So almost 50% of my unit was under stop loss at the time. And they all, they all left the unit and got out. Um, and I had to stick around, uh, and, uh, serve longer until the investigation was over. But they said that I, uh, I didn't break operational security and I wasn't a spy, thank God. And, um, I got my honorable discharge and they changed a bunch of rules about posting publicly. So when you, you got discharged, uh, at that point where you like, you know, peace is the answer. I need to get involved with veterans for peace or was it a a little while or. Yeah, it was a while. Um, I mean, I was angry, <laughs> you know, like, like, honestly, like peace was the furthest thing from my mind. Um, I was anti-war. I was anti that war. Um, uh, you know, to be for peace, um, it took me a while mentally to get there. Um, I was against a lot of things, <laughs> you know, I was against the the government. I was against war. I was against, you know, um, I was against a lot of things, our society at large and um, you know, capitalism and corporations and all sorts of systems and institutions that um, I wanted to point my finger at. And I was against myself. You know, I, I had a massive war against me because I felt like a criminal for perpetrating all of this violence. Um, like I was a I was a murderer, you know, and here I am coming back to the States being treated like a hero by 80 percent of our population yeah, what, at the time. What? What was that like for you? If I might interrupt you in that moment, you know, when people might've come up to you and said, thank you for your service. Oh, I, I always had really uh, like colorful answers for them. Um, you know, most of them didn't want to reply. They just wanted to like alleviate, you know, that awkwardness, um, or, um, do their good deed for the day and check the box, you know? Um, I don't know, like, somebody thanked me for my service. Um, you know, I would, uh, you know, I'd reply for like, uh, you know, it wasn't that hard to murder those children. You're welcome, you know, or like, you know, like play it off like, like that, you know, I would, I would not stand at national anthems at sporting events and such. Um, and I had rehearsed in my head, like the arguments that I would have with people that were going to confront me. Like I was looking for that confrontation to like have that argument, um, you know, <laughs> during the middle of a national anthem at a sporting event, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it was, uh, I was, I was in a very bitter, bitter spot. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was super self, self-destructive too. Um, uh, but, uh, when I first got home to Colorado Springs, Colorado, which is, you know, I ended up at my mother's house who lives, uh, you know, lives in the mountains just outside of Colorado Springs. Um, I would I would go to the airport and steal yellow ribbon magnets off of cars that were parked at the airport. 
put them in a box and go down to the city park and sell them back to people for $5 a piece with a, with a uh, cardboard box that said, support the vets, you know, support the troops. And uh, people would buy them and I would make, you know, 60 bucks and then blow it all on, on beer at the bar next door, you know, and not even have a dollar left over, you know, <laughs> after at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't very healthy. Really what, what changed for me for, for the peace effort. Um, I was invited to Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas for veterans for peace. It was having a summer convention and, uh, I was invited down there it had been maybe a few months after I got home. Um, and, uh, you know, I was happy to, I was happy to go. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple days into the event, I'm approached by this woman and, uh, I'm having lunch and she says, uh, her son was killed in, in Iraq and that she was going to go out to Crawford, Texas and confront George W. Bush while he's on vacation at his Crawford ranch and, uh, ask him, why her son is dead. And she said, uh, she said, will you stand by my side? And I was like, I can't replace your son, but yeah, I mean, I, I can't say no, I'm definitely stand by your side. I've got a couple of things to ask that dude anyway. And, uh, you know, we rolled out there with a bunch of people, um, and, uh, we got stopped by the secret service and us marshals, like, well, before we got anywhere close to even visual range of the ranch. And, uh, you know, we got stopped and, yeah, I, I asked Cindy, I was like, or it's Cindy Sheehan. I don't know if you realize that her, her son, Casey, mm-hmm. um, you know, I asked her like, Hey, uh, like, we're not, we're not going to get any closer really, you know, we could, we could try to bust through, but really we're, we're just going to get arrested slowly, but surely as we all try to make it to the ranch, you know, we're certainly not going to confront this dude. So, um, you know, what do you want to do? And she says, well, I'm not going to leave until I talk to him. I was like, okay, well, we could, I guess we could sit here. There's only one road out, you know, we could sit here and block it. I'm sure it'll just get helicoptered out eventually, but, um, we could just block this road until we're all arrested or, um, she says, that's what I want to do. Let's, let's set up camp. We might be here a while. So a bunch of us went back to town and bought a bunch of camping gear and as much as stuff as we could afford. And, uh, we came back and we built what was called camp Casey and, uh, we staked out that place, uh, you know, the intention was staking out for a real long time. Um, I, I was like, I was new to everything. And I was like, well, I'm, you know, I've got a plane ride home in two days. Like the most I could stay out here is two days. So I left. And, uh, while I was there for two days, more and more people came, like, I thought she was going to just start breaking up and people are just going to start going home. Uh, but the camp like doubled in size, quadrupled in size, you know, it was 10 times the size like when I had left and I was like, well, that's, that's pretty encouraging. Like all these people, you know, are coming to help out. And, uh, I was in the airport in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, leaving to go back to Colorado Springs. And, uh, I look on the TV and there's, there's Cindy Sheehan on CNN on the television in the airport. I'm like, wow, like, okay. Like maybe, maybe there's enough people that really can make a difference. And like, I was, I was kind of hooked at that point, just as an organizer, you know, I got more involved in Iraq veterans against the war. Cause I was the first active duty member of Iraq veterans against the war. I joined while I was, while I was in Iraq and, um, I got more involved in them and more involved in organizing and veterans for peace. And, uh, you know, really slowly, um, like doing something about it, like helped heal me, 
you know, because I, I have post-traumatic stress disorder and, you know, it, it could be debil debilitating at times. You know, I've got night terrors, intrusive thoughts, like, you know, I've got, I've, I've got all that stuff, you know, I jump at loud noises and, you know, what, whatnot. Um, but the real, uh, the real thing that's like impacting me is my moral injury, you know, having, having committed such atrocities in the name of the U.S. government, um, coming back with that level of shame and guilt. Um, you know, I've struggled with suicidal thoughts and I've struggled with, uh, at risk behavior, uh, not allowing to, to have pleasure, you know, to allow myself to be happy, um, sabotaging relationships, career opportunities, um, you know, relationships with family members, romantic relationships, like, uh, like I would just, I would just really like punish myself. If I ever had fun, it would follow like with sometimes weeks long of, uh, like just, you know, like taking it out on myself, basically drinking problems, uh, narcotics, whatever it is. Um, and, uh, you know, they're not gonna, they can't heal that in the VA, <laughs> you know, the, the VA is not going to figure out a way to, to cure your moral injury. Um, you know, it's, it's really a sociological problem, you know, it's a political problem. Um, and, uh, the solutions are also sociological, I think, um, you know, the VA is never going to make a pill that cures being betrayed by your nation and being lied to. Um, so, so what do you do? You know, I dedicated myself unwittingly to service again and service under my conditions, you know, a way to really serve humanity and, and, you know, not just my nation and my neighbors and my community, certainly not like, uh, you know, corporate executives and politicians, like I was, I was going to serve the way I wanted to serve and really help people. And, um, you know, I, I know that if you get involved, if you have moral injury and you get involved in like community service in any way, you know, you can just work at a soup kitchen and you leave that place and you feel better about yourself. Like you did something right. Um, but working, uh, towards peace, towards ending war, towards uh, sharing my story with with kids who might join the military, um, to prevent them from going overseas and murdering people, um, you know, and destroying communities, uh, was so feeling to me um, that slowly I started to heal. You know, I started to feel better, and that that altruism path um, really was super enlightening and really healing, and eventually. Like I got healthy enough to, you know, have a stable relationship in a family and then like anchor, like anchor a lot of that service towards my family and continue the work I was doing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I started to heal my moral injury. Uh, but a lot of veterans, you know, and not just veterans, just people, humans that, that commit crimes, feel guilty or ashamed about something, um, never find that, um, that discovery that if they help and they commit to people and they just serve that, that they could find redemption, they could eventually maybe even forgive themselves. Um, and that's just basically what I've started to do is, I, you know, I, I can't forget what I've done. Like it, like a, it builds who I am and why I do what I do. And it fuels that fire and I'll never allow myself to just forget what I have done. Um, but I can start to forgive myself and realize that I'm just, I have to take personal accountability for my actions, but also realize that I'm part of a system and an institution 
that I have very little control over and that um, I can try to change it, but I can't go backwards in time and, you know, defeat this entire cycle in these institutions and, and change it that way. So, um, so you wrestle with these, these two really difficult issues. That's amazing, man. Um, just one last question before we go, uh, at this point, do you have any hope for a lasting peace? Yeah, absolutely. I have to have hope, you know, um, you know, it's, it's weird. Like I'm, I'm a very cynical person. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I do have hope and you have to, you know, I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't have hope that I could, I could change even the little things, you know, if I could move the dial even a little bit, um, it's worth it. If I could save one life, um, it's worth it. You know, what is it to somebody who's taken so many lives? You know, it's, it's nothing. It's really the least I can do. Um, and, and do I think I can save one life by my work? Yeah. I'm, I'm almost certain that I have already. Right. Um, so that gives me hope and, in the, in the greater scheme of things of finding peace, eventually, I think it's possible. There's tons of solutions that we still have to overcome. You know, uh, working towards peace is not like a one, one issue thing. It's like, oh, let's not have war, right? Our war is driven by economic divide, by insecurities, by uh, resource inequality, by, you know, religious divide and racism and, uh, you know, uh, you know, different, systematic controls that that are operating within you know within this world that are being used as tools to manipulate people into like motivated to to work towards uh an individual's end and centralized power like these things have to be solved you're just not going to be able to go and like plead to the people in power for peace and there's going to be peace because if they decide to not have war today all these systematic issues and these root problems are going to exist and it's going to create war and conflict. Um, so we have to solve all these things, right? War is not just an international issue with foreign policy. War is here at home. You know, war is in our backyard. We've got peace at home, peace abroad, you know, because we realize that all these, all these issues that we're dealing with today are intersectional, right? They're all connected. And, uh, you know, we got to work on uh, against racism, against white supremacy, against misogyny. You know, we've we've got to work on you know our ca against capitalism, against you know all these all these modes uh, that we've just become accustomed to in, in this habitual nature as Americans. Um, you know, we got to fight against all of that because all of that those things are root causes of war. Garrett, and this is the best time to do it for sure, right? You know, I I, th I think COVID. COVID-19 in a lot of ways have broken a lot of paradigms where people have thought um, in these boxes. And I think a lot of folks realize that let the, the reach to find, um, you know, public health, you know, universal health care or uh, uh, just a, a universal wage or, you know, education and, and repaying student debt, um, you know, all these things. Uh, we can actually do when before just people were stuck like this is these are the parameters we're stuck in and that's how it is and that's I'm going to try to play within those rules but now people are like you know screw that we can these systems are 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 malleable we could change them and we could push for change and things could get better for everybody awesome man thank you so much uh for coming on the show and uh thank you for what you're doing right now I really appreciate it great to meet you 
Cheers, Zach. I'm glad you all are doing a podcast now, and I'm happy to be on sometime in the future. I'd love to have you back. Zach Boschman here, co-owner of CitizenTruth.org. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Citizen Truth podcast. The intro and outro song is Enthusiast by Tours and is provided via the Creative Commons license. Please subscribe and check us out at CitizenTruth.org.